And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their full their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father, who is unseen. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do keep your Bibles open. That passage from Matthew 6 will be helpful to you and me. Allow me to pray as we come to this. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a speaking God. We thank you that as we open uh, your word, we can hear you speak to us today. Please, would you speak to us? Please, would you clear out the things in our minds, the obstacles uh, to hearing and to, and to following you this morning? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in order to know how you should speak, it's important to know who you're speaking to, I think. Now, I'm taking this on, um, on second-hand information, but I understand there to be, and perhaps there's somebody in the, the congregation who knows better, I understand there to be something like 18 different ways of saying the same sentence in Japanese. Is that roughly right? Uh, depending on who you're speaking to. Uh, so you must consider not only the level of politeness that you're using, uh, but also whether the person you're speaking to is a member of your in-group or a different group. Uh, what their, their age is and what their rank is and so on. The social calculations make it really complex for an outsider to come and speak Japanese fluently. Is that right, Stephen? Is that something like that? Not a fluent speaker. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, but it, it makes it really difficult in Japanese, because you have to know who you're speaking to. You have to gauge those things before you know how to address them. And even though English doesn't have the same sort of formal setup as that, we still have our own rules to observe, don't we? I mean, 
you don't speak to your boss like you speak to your friends, do you? You don't uh, say the same things to your children that you say to the 7-Eleven cashier, do you? And I assure you, it would be embarrassing for you and I both if I spoke to you on the door as I speak to my dog at home. Now, aren't you a handsome boy? I probably am not going to, to say that. Although you are all handsome boys and, and girls. <laughs> and this morning we, we read Jesus' most famous teaching on prayer. And we see how much he has to say about how we should pray and, and what we should pray. And everything that he has to say about prayer comes from having a proper understanding of who it is we're praying to. So this morning, we're first going to think about how we should pray, and how we should not pray, actually. And then we'll think about what we should pray. So how should Christians pray? Not like hypocrites, not like pagans, but like Christians. Last Sunday, our guest preacher, Niels, spoke to us uh, from verses 1 to 18 of this same chapter, and we, we read these same verses but he was focusing on a, a different topic, the difference between false religion and true religion. False religion is that which is done in the sight of others to impress others, to make them feel uh, good about us, to make them think highly of us, to win their approval. That's false religion. But true religion is what's done for God's approval alone. So... As Christians, when we give to charity, we don't announce it with trumpets. We don't give giant novelty checks. We do it quietly, not letting our left hand know what our right hand is doing. So that God is glorified rather than me. And when we fast, we don't put on our pious, suffering faces so that people ask us what's going on. And we get to say, oh, nothing, just being super holy. How about you? Well, we don't say that. We... we Keep it between us and God. And in the same manner, Jesus says, verse 5, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. You see, the hypocriti, hypocrite, it's simply the Greek word meaning actor or role player. And you know, in, in a film or in the theater, that's a good thing to be an actor. You, you do your job well, you get a standing ovation, you get a, an Academy Award from your peers. But in the context of prayer, play acting is wicked, according to Jesus. Because it shows we fundamentally misunderstood who it is we're speaking to. An actor ultimately speaks his lines to please the audience. Even though he's speaking to the other character in the story, he's pleasing us. But in prayer, our primary audience isn't one another. It's our Father. Our Father who's unseen. You know, if you were given audience with a dignitary, uh, a queen or a president or a chief executive or a, a chief secretary or, or whoever it might be, if you came up to them, and they were ready to speak to you, and you turned your back on them, and you started speaking to everyone else in the room, highlighting how very important you were to be up here, 
Well, that would dishonor the dignitary, wouldn't it? It would show that you've overestimated your importance, and you've way underestimated theirs. And so praying like an actor dishonors God in the same way. We, we overestimate our position, and we make God a prop in our show, our performance. So far, so much like last week. But as Jesus then continues his teaching on prayer, we see that the hypocrisy of the Pharisees is not the only sin to be avoided in prayer. Uh, we must also avoid babbling prayer like the pagans. Pagan prayer, verse 7. When you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. You see, you don't have to be a Christian to pray. In fact, there are people across the street, possibly right now, proving that at the temple. You don't have to be a Christian to pray. Pagans pray. But their prayer is different in kind. Jesus uses the word uh, batologeo. It's, it's used to describe their prayer, but it's the only recorded use of that word in any Greek text. So there's some discussion about the nuance of it. In the NIV, we have it translated here as babbling prayer. In the old authorized version, if you are familiar with it, vain repetition. And still others, heaping up empty phrases. Whatever the particular nuance we give it is, the general meaning is clear, isn't it? It's empty. It's, it's formal without content. Pagan prayers are empty prayers. What does that mean? Well, I think it includes prayers that are devoid of contents. Prayer wheels, prayer flags, transcendental meditation, yoga, lighting joss sticks and bowing, or, or lighting candles and kneeling. You know, so-called prayer where there is nothing communicated. Nothing communicated. That's not Christian prayer. Uh, but it is possible to pray empty prayers with words as well. It's not just the wordless sorts of prayer that can be babbling. And that's the meaning Jesus goes on to highlight. You know, ch chanting mantras, praying in foreign tongues, whether that's Arabic or, or Latin or angelic, if you don't understand what you're saying, that's a problem. Or, or the mindless repetition of, of set prayer, like a rosary. Or even the set prayers that we say together on Sunday morning might be babbling sort of prayer, if our minds aren't engaged with it, if we're not communicating uh, something of our own hearts in it, if we're just repeating it. Empty phrases. Even spontaneous prayer can be babbling, an empty sort of prayer. If we pray without any real thought or, or desire or intention to communicate, it's just, you know, the circle of People praying has come to us, and now I feel I must say something. Well, that can be babbling prayer, too. Jesus says, verse 8, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. True prayer, in contrast to 
pagan prayer, earnestly communicate something to someone. Okay? And, and not just someone, but our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father who knows what we need before we even ask Him. That's what Jesus says. So our prayers should have content, but not because we need to somehow inform God about stuff that's going on that He's not aware of. Our Father knows before we even ask. But, but we pray with content, consciously bringing the things of our life before our Father and committing them into His hands. Not so much to inform Him, but to help us to unload uh, what's going on onto him to help us be dependent on the Father in heaven. So having explained how we should pray, namely by earnestly addressing our Heavenly Father rather than an audience of people, and by thoughtfully bringing our concerns rather than just babbling or empty repetition, Jesus then turns to what we should pray. This, then, is how you should pray, says Jesus. And what should Christians pray, according to Jesus? God-centered, deeply dependent sorts of prayers. God-centered and deeply dependent sorts of prayers. The Lord's Prayer is the most well-known prayer in the world. It's recited most frequently of any prayer. It's simple enough for small children to memorize. And you know, in my experience, it is remembered by those suffering from dementia long after they have forgotten their own children. It's not a complex prayer, but it is a deeply meaningful one. It doesn't cover every aspect of Christian prayer. We need the rest of the New Testament to show us some of those other aspects. But it teaches us the core. It gives us a model of what every Christian prayer should be. And I think that in a sense, the Christian approach to prayer modeled by Jesus here and found in the church down through the ages is a result of the profound truth at the beginning of this prayer. The, the truth about who God is. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. You know, whereas the hypocrites pray with an eye to the crowds they want to impress, the pagans pray with an eye to a distant deity that they must somehow placate, somehow uh, through rituals and words get to listen to them. We Christians pray to our Father in heaven. Our Father. Because he invites us into an intimate kind of familial relationship with him. Uh, we have access to him like a child has to their father. And he cares for us like a father cares for their children. You know, this isn't the sort of father that some of us might have had. I'm sure many of us had good fathers, but some of us will have had fathers who were cold or were harsh or were drunk or were disappointed. But that's not the kind of father God is. He's a loving father. The God we pray to is a personal, loving Father who knows us and treats us like his own children. And what's more, he is our Father in heaven. 
the, the one who intimately loves us and knows us and listens to us, he has all the power, all the authority. He sits enthroned in heaven. His sovereign hand, it guides everything. He laid the foundations of the earth. He holds the oceans in his hand. He sustains all things by the power of his word. And he invites you to speak to him. That's Christian prayer. So when we know this first essential truth about who God is, our, our personal, our loving, our powerful father, it changes the way we pray. Well, how so? Well, first of all, it, it makes us want to put his concerns above our own. Because he's our loving father. And second, it makes us able to commit our needs into his hands. Because we know that he is enthroned in the heavens and can see to our every concern. You see, the rest of the Lord's Prayer flows out of that first line, I think. A knowledge of who God is. And the first three petitions of the prayer are concerned with God's glory. Now, he's our Father in heaven. We want to see what He wants to be done, done. And so we see so we read, Hallowed be your name. To hallow something is to make it holy, to hold it as holy. Of course, the Father is holy. He alone is perfectly holy and righteous and just. But this is a request that he would be recognized as holy by the world. It's a request that the, the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty would be known and celebrated by people as holy. God's children want to see his name honored. You'll know of children on the playground saying, my dad can beat up your dad, right? And maybe that's not the best sort of thing, but it's, it comes from a desire to, to let people know how great your father is. And likewise, Christian prayer wants to, uh, to see that people know how great the father is. God's children want to see his name honored in the world, in the church, and in the lives of individuals. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what it looks like when God's name is hallowed. God's kingdom is his royal rule. It comes in power whenever his reign is recognized, whenever people live according to his will. When we pray that God's kingdom would come, we're asking that his rule would be established in the hearts and lives of people around us and people far afield. We're praying that the witness of the church about our Heavenly Father would bring more people into relationship with him. We're also praying that Jesus Christ might return in power. You know, as much as we might evangelize, as much as we might uh, sing the praises of our Heavenly Father, there will be some who resist. But when Jesus Christ comes in power, we're told every knee will bow. Every tongue 
will confess. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we're saying, Father, allow people to, to come to you now and bow the knee. But when the Lord Jesus comes, we want to see everyone bow the knee. Christ will return to finally overthrow every kingdom, every power, every authority that stands in opposition to him. You know, those first three petitions then are the radically God-centered, focused of Christian prayers. Now, the people who are praying in the temple across the street, they'll be offering their joss sticks, their, their tea and their fruit, but I think it's because they want something. They, they want good health. They want good exam scores. They, they want a good job for themselves or for a loved one. Or perhaps they've gotten those things and they want to make sure they give thanks before it's snatched away from them. But Christian prayers begin with a recognition and a celebration of who God is. Not for what we can get from him, but for, for who he is. A concern for what he desires. Because we know his character. We know as an earthly father has compassion on his children, so our heavenly father has compassion on us. We know that he didn't spare his unique son, but gave him up for us so that we could become his sons and daughters, so that we all could become his sons and daughters. He's shown himself to be good, He's shown himself to be more loving than we could have dared imagine. And so we want what he wants. Even when we don't understand what he wants, we want what he wants. Even when our lives are a mess and we can't see how he could possibly want anything in it, we want what he wants. Because he's proven himself to be good through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ first and foremost. Is that how we pray? Are our prayers radically God-centered like that? Are we putting his glory above our concerns? And if not, then perhaps we haven't yet really recognized who it is we're praying to. But if the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer are God-centered, the next three show that Christians have a deep dependence on God. Showing that we have no need that is too small or too large to bring to our Father. For he loves us, he's concerned for our total welfare. So we read in verse 11, Give us today our daily bread. Bread was the staple food of Jesus' day, as it is in many of the countries that we uh, will come from here this morning. I guess in Hong Kong it might better read, um, give us today our daily rice. Because this is not a request for a lavish feast. It's for basic sustenance. All the things necessary for life. Food, and health, and clothing, and shelter. And so on. Christian prayer acknowledges that all things come from the hand of God. And moreover, we're dependent on him to provide daily. Give us today our daily bread. 
Uh, this is a prayer for our immediate needs. Not for what we might someday out in the future maybe need. But what will get us through today. You know, tomorrow or, or next week or next year we can approach the same Father. He'll still be there to ask for our daily bread then. And so Christians focus on our immediate needs. The needs of today. We recognize our dependence on God to just survive. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. If we're dependent on God for the basic needs of life, the physical needs, how much more dependent are we on him for the spiritual needs? The basic needs of our soul. So here sin is likened to debt, as, as both deserve punishment. But as Christians, we recognize that we cannot repay the debts we've incurred. We are spiritually bankrupt. So if we're going to escape the burden of our debt that we, we have incurred by our sin, only God's forgiveness is going to do that for us. Is he willing to forgive is the question. And the answer, as we know, is that he unquestionably is willing to forgive us our sin debt. He has come to pay that debt. At, at the cost of his own blood, he pays that debt. And as people who've been shown that very costly kind of forgiveness, how could we not forgive other people? How could we not share forgiveness with others? And Jesus picks this up again in verses 14 and 15. How could we deny forgiveness to others when we have received forgiveness ourselves? You know, if we hold grudges, if we deny forgiveness, that might suggest that we haven't really grasped the forgiveness we've been given. We haven't really grasped the magnitude of what it costs God to forgive us. You know, forgiveness is always costly. It was costly for God. It's costly for us when we choose to forgive someone. But it's only as we recognize God's graciousness to us that we will have the strength to be gracious to others. And Jesus closes with, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This last petition looks to the future and asks, our Heavenly Father, who alone knows the future, to protect us from trials and temptations which can overwhelm. When our God-centered, God-dependent prayers seem too difficult to be answered, when forgiveness seems too difficult to give, when faith is crumbling under the attacks of the world, the flesh, and the devil, the Christian prays to the only one who can preserve us, body and soul, and deliver us into his eternal kingdom. So we can see that these last three petitions, they cover every aspect of human life. Our complete physical, spiritual, and moral dependence on our Father in heaven. You know, there's, there's nothing too mundane to bring to God. Nothing too small that our Father won't be willing to hear you out on it. And there's nothing too large, too complex, 
too overwhelming to bring to him. He's interested in our daily bread. He's interested in uh, protecting us from the evils that we might face in the future. He is completely trustworthy. So in closing this morning, I just want to ask you, please, would you, would you think about this this week as you pray? What a, what a complete difference it makes to the way we pray when we have a proper understanding of who it is we're praying to. In contrast to the hypocrites who focus on their own reputation, Christian prayer is radically God-centered, seeking his glory first. In contrast to the pagans who use empty phrases as a kind of incantation to get God to listen, Christian prayer recognizes our deep dependence on God at every level of our lives. And all of that arises out of a knowledge of God as our Father in heaven, the one who creates us, the one who sustains us, the one who sent his Son to save us, the one who will welcome us into eternity forever. You know, is it any wonder that from the earliest days of the church, Christians have pinned this doxology onto the end of this prayer of Jesus? A kind of crescendo of praise as they, as they say it to the Father God. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. How could we fail to praise a God like him? Should we pray this prayer together? I'm sorry, I don't have, uh, I don't have it up in, in the sort that we pray. Let's pray this, and if you can remember the doxology at the end, we'll pray that part of it as well. So we say together, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours, Lord, is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.